want to say before we begin that please pardon my raspy throat. I didn't have a voice this morning and I'm trying to do the best I can to forge ahead and push through it, but uh, um, we'll hopefully not lose that again. Let me begin by first saying that when the Apostle Paul wrote those things as he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit in both Ephesians chapter 5 and also in Colossians chapter 3, that in those passages of Scripture we are commanded to sing. This is talking about the times when we would assemble with those of like precious faith and worship the great God of heaven. But in those commands to sing, no player on any instrument can read in the New Testament any passage which commands him to play such an instrument. I realize today that singing and instrumental music in the church in the religious world is a much debated issue that has been for many years. We are talking about, though, a religious question when we speak about something that is to be found in the worship of the church. So all that being said, when we deal with religious questions, we must understand that no question is settled right until it is settled according to the proper authority. And, no, uh, pro and the proper authority is none other than the New Testament for all religious questions today. You know, it can never be a matter of what you think. It can never be a matter of what I think. It can never be a matter of what you like. And certainly, it can never be a matter of what I like. We must always uh, determine what the scriptures teach on the subject and find out what is found in the New Testament. When we talk about the church, we recognize that the church is a New Testament institution. That institution, therefore, is of Jesus Christ and no one else. It is not of Moses or any other Old Testament Bible character, but Jesus Christ and him only. Therefore, we must look to Jesus Christ in his last will and testament and look to the laws that govern our work and worship in the church. You remember that much confusion arose in the early days of the church over the effort of some of the Jews to bind on churches the ordinances of the law of Moses. You know, in Wednesday night services, we've been talking about the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. We're, all, we're almost to the end of the 14th chapter. But what we find in the 15th chapter is there were Judaizers that were entering into the body of Christ. We're talking about people that were Jewish by blood, and yet they were baptized into Christ. They were members of the Lord's church. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to bind an ordinance from the old law and, and apply that to those Gentiles that would enter into the flock. For example, we look back at the history of the Jews, and the Jews had great disdain for the Gentiles because the Jews were God's people. And so when the Jews were converted to Christianity, in the back of their mind, no doubt they still held some of those biases and prejudices against the Gentiles. So this is what they said. There was a group or a sect or a faction of the church that were Jewish by blood that were trying to bind circumcision on the Gentiles. In other words, we really don't have any other choice. We have to accept them on the same terms concerning baptism and salvation. But we're going to add one more thing. We're going to tell the Gentiles that they cannot be saved unless they are circumcised too. The Apostle Paul had to address such issues. Somebody might say, well, what about Timothy? Why did Paul encourage Timothy to be circumcised? What's the difference? 
The difference was in circumcising Timothy, it would cause him to have a greater influence for the cause of Christ among those that are unconverted Jews when he would preach the gospel. Here's the point and here's the problem. The problem was those in Acts 15 were binding the ordinance of, of circumcision on members of the Lord's church, Gentiles, if you will, and making that a test of fellowship, whether they would be accepted or whether they would not be. But any part in any effort to bind on Christians the law of Moses or any other part of it results in a sect, results in a faction, results in division. Supporting instrumental music in the worship based upon Old Testament practices is certainly no different today. Let me make a very bold statement here that instruments of music are prohibited in the scriptures even though you will not find a passage of scripture that expressly forbids the practice of using instrumental music. Now why do I say that? How many times has somebody said, show me the passage of scripture that expressly forbids a particular practice? Well, you will not find a passage of scripture that says, thou shalt not have instruments of music in the assembly. But I am saying this, according to the commands of the New Testament, instruments of music are prohibited and violate God's laws. In the word of God, we have commands. We have direct commands. But direct commands are oftentimes used with different terms. There are inclusive terms and there are exclusive terms. It includes the thing that is commanded and at the very same time, it excludes all other things that are not mentioned. For example, in just a little while, some brother is going to come up here and is going to wait on the table and we are going to commune together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When Jesus gave the command, and the Apostle Paul did too, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did this. He took one loaf of unleavened bread, and he said it, it is representative of, or it signifies, the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus took only one cup, and the cup was representative of the New Testament, or New Covenant, by which we are bound, and contained there in the cup is the fruit of the vine and nothing else. And the fruit of the vine is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the inclusive part of that command and that example? The inclusive part is one loaf, one cup, and contained therein the fruit of the vine. What is the exclusive part? The exclusive part is everything else. You cannot exclude anything else. You cannot add anything else. When Jesus took one loaf, it automatically excluded two loaves. When Jesus took a piece of that bread and passed it around and they all did the same, that's the inclusive part. The exclusive part is you can't break it down the middle and send one down one side and the other down the other side. When Jesus took one loaf of, uh, or one cup on that table, it eliminated multiple cups, individual cups of any variety and any number. You know, there is a, a particular religion today. I know a little bit about that because I lived next door to them when we were growing up, when we lived in Ojai. And you know, they, they actually believe that you can use water on the Lord's table. 
And I questioned that. I said, but the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with grape juice. And they said, we can use 7-Up if we want to, as long as we pretend or as long as we allow it to symbolize the blood of Christ. But when Jesus used the fruit of the vine, grape juice, it excluded everything else and anything else. We cannot add our favorite dish on the ground that it was not expressly forbidden. The command to baptize believers in Mark 16, 15, and 16, when Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The inclusive part, who gets to be baptized for the remission of their sins? They that believe. And that, that word belief meaning more than just accepting of facts. It means having the force to obey. So it includes those that are willing to abide by the teachings of the New Testament. Somebody hears the gospel. They believe. It has the force to obey. They are candidates for baptism. That is inclusive. What is exclusive? The unbelievers and everyone else. Because to be baptized, a direct prerequisite is to believe, having the force to obey. The command to sing excludes any other kind of music, even if it is not expressly forbidden. I want to make this point. It is a denominational position. It is a denominational position which even some among our ranks as members of the body of Christ have adopted this particular theory, this particular uh, practice. It is a denominational position that whatever is not expressly forbidden is allowed. In other words, I want to add this practice. I want to do this thing. I want to add this to our worship service. I want to add that in my spiritual life. I want to do things, and you tell me in the scripture where those things are expressly forbidden. That is a denominational position, and sadly, even among some, they have adopted the practice of whatever is not expressly forbidden is allowed. I like what a brother said one time, though, when he said, you know, I'm getting tired of hearing everybody say, show me where it's wrong, show me where it's wrong, show me where it's wrong. I'm waiting for someone that is, that is willing to adopt a brand new practice that we've not seen before or done before in the Lord's church and tell me where it's right. Tell me where it's right. Whatever is not expressly forbidden, oftentimes it is the thinking of today that it is allowed. But in commands, we have generic and specific terms too. Like for example, in Matthew chapter 28 and 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus gave a direct command. And what was that? That we have to go to all nations and we have to make disciples of all nations. We have to go and baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then we must teach them to observe all things that Jesus said, I have commanded you. That is a direct command with a generic term. You know what the generic term is there? The generic term is the word go. Jesus didn't tell me how to go. He just said go. So guess what? I can choose to walk. I can even ride a skateboard. 
I don't want to do that. I can even do that. I can ride a bicycle. I can ride a motorcycle. In the Philippines, it's filled with motorcycles. In fact, if you eliminated motorcycles, they wouldn't get around. It's so expensive to drive a car because gas is like $4 a gallon. And they're not making anything. So you can just imagine how handy a motorcycle comes in. You find preachers uh, riding their motorcycles everywhere they go to get around. That is scriptural. Why? Because Jesus didn't say how to go. He just said go. I can ride in a car. I can get on a bus. I can get on a train. I can even do what I just did and get on an airplane and fly some 9,000 miles away from home and preach the gospel and never violate the direct command and the great commission because Jesus simply said, go. However, what if Jesus would have said, walk to all nations? Now, that would have been very difficult for all of us to do, but if he would have said walk, we might, with our human reasoning and wisdom, sit back and say, well, that's just impossible. I'll just add this or I'll add that. After all, there's no other way that I can get there. But if Jesus would have said in a specific term to walk, I would violate his direct command if I rode that bike, if I rode that motorcycle, if I got on a bus, train, plane, or whatever. Because Jesus gave a direct command, though, with a generic term, we can choose the manner in which we travel. But let's go further. Music, the word music, is in itself a generic term. Had the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 said, make sure when you come together, you have music in your worship service. That would have been a generic term and not a specific term. And because of that, we could choose all manner of music. We could have had country western music. We could have rock music. We wouldn't do that. I'm just saying, if he gave a generic term, then everything's included. You can add it all in. You can have instruments of music with a piano only, with an organ, with a band, with an orchestra. You can do all manner of things if Paul would have said, have music in the worship, because that is a generic term. But sing is a specific term. And the Apostle Paul said, that's the kind of music, that's the only kind of music that is allowed uh, from God's people. We would violate the commands of the Apostle Paul, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, by having any other kind of music in the service other than singing. Authority to play the instrument is not found in any passage that commands us to sing. Now I want to talk about a common argument. I know I have a common argument over here. And by the way, we're going to talk about some specific things about this argument that was between a Baptist preacher and a Church of Christ preacher and some of the things that they said. Here's another argument, though, for those that are uh, advocates of instrumental music. They say, I know that Paul said to sing, but really, it is an expedient to have an instrument of music. Folks, how many times has somebody said that some practices the same thing as a songbook? Well, it's the same thing as having a songbook. If you say that that's wrong, well, then a songbook is wrong. I contend right now that one of these things is an expedient and one is not. But to those that are advocates of instrumental music, they use the word expedient while uh, refusing to understand its definition. The word expedient, though, 
means by definition something fit or suitable to the end in view. For something to be a Bible expedient, it has to be something that aids us in the end result of what is commanded. Now, it expedites the doing of the thing that is commanded. Instrumental music cannot be an expedient because it in no way assists the singing because it is a different kind of music. What about a songbook though? You know, we have people here, with men here that can stand up and grab a songbook and lead a song when they've never seen it before. I've always been quite impressed by that. I cannot. But you know what I even I understand? I understand the elements or the things that are involved in singing. What is involved in singing? I'm not talking about any other kind of music. I'm talking about singing. The two things that are involved, very simple, I know, but words are one of them, and the tune is something else. A songbook gives us an expedient to do just that. It tells us the words, and it guides us through the tune. Therefore, a songbook is an expedient. The essential idea in the singing that's required by Paul was teaching and admonishing and making melody in the heart. Instrumental music does not aid us in doing any of those, therefore it cannot be a Bible expedient. If one wishes to make a noise or a particular sound, then an instrument of music could be an expedient. But if we are going, as one man said one time, if we are going to follow what the Apostle Paul commanded, instrumental music is a hindrance. How many times has people argued, well, it's just a small addition? After all, we're still worshiping. We still mean well. But when we look to additions to worship, the Bible says about the things that were written of old or aforetime in the Old Testament were written for our learning. So let's learn. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32, the Bible says, What things soever I command you... That shall you observe and do, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Simple. If we are going to worship God, we can't add to the worship, and we cannot subtract from the worship. Perfect examples of these is a very familiar example is found in Leviticus chapter 10 in the first seven verses there with Nadab and Abihu. That is a perfect example. These men were priests. It was their business to do the things that are commanded in the tabernacle worship. And as far as we know, they did all of that. What's the problem? They didn't subtract from anything. They added something to it. Was God pleased? No, the Bible says that God provided fire that devoured them right then and there before God. They mixed a worship. They added what the Lord had not commanded. Another example with Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Abel offered the sacrifice that God commanded and therefore he was approved. Cain substituted something of his own choosing and because of that, God refused to accept it. God will accept no worship that he is not appointed. God commands us to sing and no other form of music will do. I've said all of those things to lay the groundwork before we look into the definitions and we look into the specific wording that's found in the scriptures that is used by Paul.
First of all, the phrase in the King James Version that says speaking to yourselves in Ephesians 5.19 is better translated speaking to each other or as it's found in the New American Standard, speaking to one another. Paul uh, uh, gives us this instruction and when we realize the praise that we are directing toward God, when we come together in the assembly and direct our praises to God, we are also doing something with each other. We are edifying one another. We are teaching one another. We are encouraging one another in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our songs then need to have lyrics that share truth and that can be understood. You know, there was a song uh, that used to be in that Sacred Selections book. Maybe it's in others too. But it's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about the day of judgment. And I've seen it written two different ways. I've seen it written on that bright and glorious morning when the dead in Christ shall rise. And I've also seen it in books on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise. I think glorious is better than cloudless because the Bible says in Acts 1, Jesus is coming back with the clouds. Now, when songs in the in the songbook talks about heaven, it talks about a cloudless place that is scriptural. But when we talk about the morning of the resurrection, whenever that's going to be, we realize it has to be with clouds because that's how Jesus is coming back. So the lyrics have to be true. They have to be true. They have to be accurate. Also, they must be understood. You know, there was a meeting we all went to years ago, a big meeting. And I'm so glad this brother did that. I've never done that, but I, I'm sure I should have because I would imagine that I've led songs over the years in my lifetime and maybe there was a word or two I didn't know what they were. But there was a brother that got up and there was a word that we don't commonly use. And he got up and he said, this word means this before we sang the song. He said, so now we can sing with the understanding also. We need to understand what we are singing, and those words must be true and must be correct. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, more words of the Apostle Paul when he said, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit... How shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at the giving of thanks? Seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest, for thou verily givest thanks well. But the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. We have to understand. Let me just give you a little aside here. In the Philippines, they don't speak our English language fluently, though they speak some. They all speak some. But when we come together on the Lord's Day, when we come together and we assemble with the Lord's Church in the Philippines on the Lord's Day, and when we commune, we need Brother Denao to translate everything being said or we cannot say amen. We can't say amen to a prayer. We can't do that unless we understand. When we come together in worship, we need to sing with the understanding. And by the way, we do that in the Philippines because the tunes of the songs are exactly the old songs that we know. And we just sing the English words. 
I got a kick out of Alan Bonifay. He was sitting there trying to sing it in Tagalog. He doesn't know what they mean. A song. I got a kick out of that. You got to sing with the understanding also. We need to have lyrics that we understand and that are true. Now, please notice that even though speaking to one another suggests congregational singing, and it does. Now, please get this point. We must not assume that worshipful singing is limited to the assembly. I don't believe at all, though I've heard it taught in my lifetime at some point in time. I've heard it taught that we cannot sing these songs of praises other than in the assembly worshiping God. I don't believe that at all. I believe in James 5 when the Bible says, uh, is any merry? Let him sing psalms. I think the Bible is saying, if you're merry, go sing. Now, in the command in the Lord's church, it doesn't say if you're in a good mood or you're happy or you're merry, then sing in the worship. It says, no, it doesn't make any difference what your day is like. It doesn't make any difference what your mood is, how you feel. You come together and you will sing. And you will do it together. And you will do it with the melody in your heart. And you will do it in uh, these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You will teach one another and admonish one another and encourage and instruct one another in doing so. That's a command. James 5, is any merry, let him sing psalms. Folks, we can get together this afternoon and we can gather around somewhere and sing. We can go to my house and we can sing. We can go to a big meeting and sit around a bonfire and sing these songs of praise. Another thing, there are no absolute distinctions that are drawn between the different types of songs that Paul talks about. Notice, first of all, Paul says the word psalm. This is a very misunderstood word of, among those that are advocates of instrumental music. Now, the word psalm, as described by Mr. Strong, is defined like this. It is a pious song... It is a song of praise. But somebody might say, now wait a minute. What about the original definition? What about what Thayer says about the original definition of the word solo? What about that? Because that word means to twitch, to twang, to strike, or to pluck. But I'm going to tell you something. If we're going to quote Thayer, we better keep quoting him. Because on page 675 of his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, this is what Thayer said. This is the same scholar that said it means to twitch, twang, strike, or pluck in its origin. Thayer gives many definitions of the, of the Greek word solo, from which we get the word psalmos, which is uh, translated in the English language as psalm. This is what Thayer says in the New Testament. The word means this in the New Testament every time. It means to sing a hymn. It means to celebrate the praises of God in song. And then it says, Ephesians 5.19, James 5.13, and Romans 15 and 9. Bullinger, another Greek lexicographer, after giving the definition of the word, he said this, it is only in the, in the Old Testament worship that musical instruments were ever used, not in the New Testament, nor in the early church. Justin Martyr expressly says that instrumental music was not found in Christian worship. 
J.W. McGarvey, one of the greatest scholars the world ever produced, said this. When any man says that by the word psalm, Paul meant to authorize instrumental music in worship, this is what McGarvey said. He is a smatterer in Greek who can believe anything that he wishes to believe. Because when the wish is father to the thought, true exegesis is like water on a duck's back. If your hope and your desire comes before the thought of understanding, then true exegesis or true understanding the context of a passage is like water going off a duck's back. You will never understand what the Word of God teaches on the subject. When Paul said, sing psalms, the instrument to be touched, twanged, and so forth is the heart and not a mechanical instrument. Paul said, make melody in your heart to the Lord. How do you do that? You do that by singing a song of praise. What about the word hymn? You know, in the religious world, a lot's been said about the different words that Paul's using and saying, well, you know, there's different words. And they use this word to authorize instrumental music. We've proven that was never in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that in the New Testament, so we can't do that. What about the other words? The other words, for example, the word hymn, Strong says, is a song written in praise to God. It is a sacred song. Matthew 26 and 30 is cited. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Acts 16, 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You know, that's a great example. They weren't worshiping God in an assembly. They weren't worshiping God in the assembly. They were in prison. In fact, it would have been unscriptural for them to worship in an unscriptural way. We're not talking about the worship service here. We're talking about a time when they were in prison at midnight and they were praying to God and they were giving God the praise and they sang songs of praise and they did so loud enough that other people that were prisoners heard them sing it. Sing it a hymn. See, you can sing hymns. You can sing what we oftentimes call uh, church songs anywhere you want to, according to the scriptures. Hebrews 2 and 12 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praise unto thee. That's the other side. You can do it away from the church and you will do it in the assembly of the church. What about spiritual songs? Strong says spiritual songs are songs belonging to the spirit or songs that have spiritual themes. You know, I gave you a variety of definitions and really... There's no tremendous distinctions between the terms and between the names that Paul gives there. There are no great distinctions between all of those. There are no absolute distinctions that are drawn between the different types of songs that Paul listed. But, you know, if somebody was going to misunderstand what Paul was talking about, and somebody didn't know what those words mean, Paul clears it up by saying next, the kind of music that's to be had, and that is singing, he says. Strong says the word singing means to sing with voicing words in musical tones involving musical modulations and inflections. You know, there are many different unique forms of singing from different parts of the world. 
I mentioned the Philippines just a, just a little bit ago. They do sing a little bit differently, the style in which they sing. You can go to Africa, and I've heard recordings in Africa of the Africans, Terry's been there, where they sing, and it doesn't quite sound exactly like we sing, the style, and so forth, and so on, in the manner. We sing in, in, in harmony. We sing with parts. But you know, when we sing with the spirit and we sing with the understanding also, and we sing words that are true and accurate and correct, and we do so according to the scriptures, it doesn't make any difference if we are in the Philippines, if we are in Africa, or we're assembled here at Plans Road and sing as we sing, all those matters of singing and song is acceptable in the eyes of God, equally so. The key is this. In our singing, it is a message, an attitude, and our sincerity rather than the style that's important. We must choose songs that are for their appropriateness and spiritual content. And the melody is made in the heart. The heart, as Thayer says, is the seat of our spiritual life. It is the source of our thoughts, the source of our passions, and the source of our desires. It is our inner man, it is our spirit with which we sing. And the words that we sing are to originate from the thoughts and feelings of our heart. We sing with the spirit and we sing with the understanding also. You know, I never did understand how someone thinks they can worship in spirit and in truth and sleep during the singing. I've seen people do that. Maybe you have too. Sleep during the singing. That's not an item of worship that we get to decide if we're going to do or not. We sing with the spirit. We sing with the understanding. We do so in truth. We sing with the melody that's in our heart. And one more thing along this line before moving on. There are many words in the New Testament that are used symbolically or figuratively that have different meanings in the Old Testament. For example, I have on the board there, I have circumcision. Now, I just mentioned in Acts 15 about circumcision. Under the old law of Moses, we are talking about literal circumcision, and that was a covenant agreement or covenant relationship that was bound upon the men, the people of God, under the law of Moses. But we don't have literal circumcision, but this word circumcision is found in the New Testament. What is it? The Bible says it is circumcision of the heart. Therefore, circumcision is not used literally in the New Testament. It is used symbolically. It is used figuratively. Sacrifice was used literally under the old law in the Old Testament. They had blood of bulls, of calves, and of goats, and so forth, and so on. We no longer have that because Jesus was our great high priest and is, and Jesus was the supreme sacrifice. Therefore, you and I don't make any more animal sacrifices in worship to God that is done away with. But the word sacrifice is in the New Testament. We make our bodies, our lives, a living sacrifice used symbolically or figuratively. What about altar? We don't actually come to a literal altar and offer a sacrifice in a place of honor and worship to God at an altar, literally. 
But the word altar is used in the New Testament. In fact, you remember what Jesus said? If we are going to apply what Jesus said to our life today, then we need to understand what he's talking about or what is used symbolically when he said, when you, can, when you remember in your mind that your brother has aught with you, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother and then come back to the altar and make the sacrifice. And we don't have a literal altar. We don't have a literal sacrifice. But we do have worship when we come together to worship. Altar being used symbolically for that. I said that to say this. It is misleading then to force the ancient literal meaning of solo onto the New Testament text to justify instrumental music. Even if solo were to carry the meaning of plucking or striking a chord, then contextually the instrument is the heart and nothing else. Finally, a common argument. A Baptist preacher was engaged in a written debate with a Church of Christ preacher, and these were the examples that were used in his final argument. He introduces the harps in heaven that are found in the Revelation letter to prove the use of instrumental music in the worship of the church. He says this, if it's in heaven, and we're gonna worship in heaven for all eternity, and it's acceptable in heaven, then why can it not be in the church? Isn't the church the earthly institution of the heavenly kingdom? Don't we believe that the church is what will be handed over to God in heaven? And we'll worship God for all eternity, and Jesus Christ will step down from the throne, and God will reign forever and ever, that God will be all in all? This fellow leaves the impression that these were literal harps. He cited Revelation 5, 8, and 9, Revelation 14, 2, and 3, and Revelation 15, 2, and 3. However, if the harps were literal, by the same rule of interpretation, you know what else is literal? Horses. There's literal horses in heaven. And they are white, red, black, and pale, according to Revelation 6 and verse 8. But let's examine the text to see whether these harps were literal or were they symbolic. In Revelation 5 and 8, whatever John saw, it was defined as the prayers of saints. In Revelation 14, 2 and 3, John doesn't say anything that he saw. In fact, whatever it means in the text, it was something that he heard and not something that he saw. What he heard was, the Bible says, a great voice as the voice of harpers harping with their harps. He never said, I saw harps being played in heaven. He said, I heard a sound, I heard a great voice, and that great voice was as the sound of harpers harping with their harps, used figuratively there. In Revelation 15, 2 and 3, it speaks of something that John saw. Among the things that he saw, he saw a sea of glass mingled with fire. I don't think we really think that literally there's a sea of glass mingled with fire in heaven. I believe we can look at that and be for symbolic meaning. No one can actually believe that literal seas of glass and mingled with fire are in heaven. Neither can we look and find that there are literal harps in heaven. Also, when a trumpet is being used in the book of Revelation... It's a time when a woe is being pronounced or an announcement's being made. Not for the melodious sound of it and not so that they can have a good tune so the angels in heaven can sing. These are symbolic 
in their context. The final argument was this. I mentioned it just a moment ago briefly, but I'll, this will be my final point. His final argument was, if it's in heaven, then it has to be all, all right to be in the church. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that infants are going to heaven? Do you believe little babies are going to go to heaven? I think and hope we all do. Little babies don't have any sin. We got a little guy that we think is going to be there one day. Among all of those that have died as children, among those that have been killed in abortion clinics, these are living souls. Don't you think they're going to heaven? I believe with all my heart they're going to heaven and they were not in the church. Because to be in the church, you have to first be in sin. And if you're a baby and you don't know how to sin, you cannot sin. Therefore, you need no remission of your sins. We don't baptize babies because they were born with a depraved soul. And we believe that they are innocent, they are pure, and they are saved. Without becoming a member of the Lord's church. Because Acts 2 tells us how you become a member of the Lord's church. It's when you repent. Repent of what? Your sins, your life. How can a baby do that? They can't. You repent and you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And when you do that, the Lord automatically adds you to his church. That's a pretty weak argument that if it's in heaven, it's got to be okay to be in the church. Those little guys are going to heaven, folks. And they never, ever came forward during an invitation and were baptized in water. One more thing. What about somebody that lives until they're 60 years old or so, but mentally they don't have the capabilities of an adult, the capacity of an adult? Maybe mentally they are as children. They're, maybe they're six or seven years old mentally. They're not accountable. They can go to heaven too without being in the church because there's no way that they could be of the mindset to make the determined choice to sin. You know, our Tanner is getting older. Taylor has already obeyed the gospel, but I've used this example. I can't use it with Taylor anymore. She's a member of the church now, or Anthony. But I remember using this as an example. They know, these kids that are, that are among us, they know what's right and wrong because what their parents tell them is right and wrong. Not because they made a moral choice, but there comes a time in their life when they will make a moral choice. They will make a choice whether this is wrong or that is wrong. I guarantee you every kid that's ever grown up in any house doesn't do things when they're young because they're afraid to get in trouble. Not because it's wrong necessarily. But over time they learn. And then when they learn and know the difference, they are accountable. And then when they make the choice to do that which is morally wrong or wrong in any other way, they sin and therefore sin is in their life and they need remission from those sins. Weak argument, if in heaven, it's gotta be in the church. Well, as we pointed out today, hopefully clearly, the only music in the worship that's acceptable in the eyes of God is when we come together congregationally and sing as we have done today. No instruments of music are allowed. They are prohibited in the worship. And the only thing we are plucking and twanging is the instrument of the heart.
We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.